everybody, and welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic Podcast. This is a clean energy crash course coming from father-daughter duo Ted Flanagan and yours truly, Sierra Flanagan. And today we're going to be building on um, our last episode. So this is the second in a three-part series talking about these chapters of my dad's life. Um, last time we learned about the 80s. James Bay, city of Toronto, my dad's adventures to Moscow, Singapore. And today we're going to be delving into the 90s and the early 2000s. So it's great to be here with you, Dad. Um, Likewise. A sunny day here in Santa Fe. <laughs> we, are in the rain, we are in the rain here in Los Angeles. So I'm glad you're having some sunshine there. Oh, my goodness. The atmospheric river is back, I guess. <laughs> Never a dull moment there in California. <laughs> Feast or famine, absolutely, when it comes to water. Never so speaking of, <laughs> let's yeah. let's dive right in. Um, so for listeners new to Ickley, um, and probably there won't be many of them, <laughs> but could you give us a high-level overview of Ickley, what that was all about, the Urban Carbon Reduction Project, and your involvement. So if you could just ground us in the context of the climate movement around this time and then how you stepped into the to the roles you did. Yeah, that's great. Happy to. It's so good to be here again with you. And yeah, the climate movement in, in 1990, um, you know, people were really starting to listen to James Hansen and to hear about uh, the effects of climate change and parts per million CO2 equivalent in the atmosphere. Um, federal government, national governments weren't, weren't really ready to take action yet. And uh, out of the United Nations was formed this, what became a nonprofit called ICLE, the International Council for Local Environmental Initiatives. It always suffered from this long, odd name, ICLE. And I, they've, I think, think they've since changed their name. But the, the idea was to get, lo to have local environmental initiatives take form. And if, and if we can't get significant action at the national level, uh, let's do it at the local level. And so ICLE was really based, had this fantastic membership of cities, counties, all over the country and then all over the world. And, and ICLE was based in, in the East Tower of Toronto City Hall. So that was pretty exciting. And I, I was linked with ICLE because of my work with the city of Toronto, uh, where I'd met Ralph Torrey, somebody who you've known for years, and then Phil Jessup, who was the head of this thing. Ickley was doing something really radical. They, they created the Urban CO2 Reduction Project. And people weren't even, you know, weren't even thinking about how to even measure their CO2, much less reduce their CO2. And Phil Jessup was just one of the most colorful people in my past. He's still, he's a terrific guy. He lives in Toronto. He, he formed the Toronto Atmospheric Fund long before anybody was thinking about funding atmospheric, atmospheric initiatives. So, so ICLE uh, had a number of different initiatives working with cities all over the world uh, and then had this urban CO2 reduction project where we had, I think it was about seven or eight European cities partnered up with about seven or eight North American cities. And together we created the first greenhouse gas inventories for those cities and their very first climate action plans. And how was ICLE funded then? 
I I think there was some there were some federal contributions, uh, but I think the members all paid their way largely. I mean, we, we had lots of international trips where you know delegations from America would go to Europe and vice versa. And I think all those individual cities were paying their own way. So I don't. I think maybe Italy even had foundation support. You know, had a number of different. It was a good old nonprofit. Um, with a great reach. I think that their headquarters was given to them by the city of Toronto, which was really sort of the, you know, the most um, ardent supporter of this initiative. So this was really the first big thrust uh, with city greenhouse gas inventories and climate action plans. Well, that that's really right. And it was, it's amazing now, because if you want to create a greenhouse gas inventory now, as you know, you know, there's protocols that are available. You can download, you know, Excel spreadsheets and different protocols, and they're loaded up with smart defaults. Uh, so if you don't really know anything, if you don't know something in detail, you can grab a smart default and and still come up with some some relatively you know useful values. But at that point, there were no smart defaults. There were no protocols. So my job working with Ralph Tory who I've done greenhouse gas works since 1991 when we were doing this was to was to basically figure out what the emissions are from various sources and I'd been involved when I was at Rocky Mountain Institute Amory asked if I'd be on the Pace Center for Pace Environmental Law Center's board Pace Pace University back in New York and Dick Ottinger and the group there had done you know the very first analysis of the, of the environmental costs of electricity so just looking at, you know, if you had a coal plant that had such and such a heat rate, this kind of, this content fuel, uh, then it would emit, you know, this amount of CO2 and nitrous oxides and sulfur oxides and particulates. And it was really very detailed what, what PACE did. And they just said, we're not sure that it's accurate, but it's better than nothing. It's a good starting point. So right. uh, not, not to belabor this, but, you know, imagine that you're in Copenhagen, which was the first city that we went to in Denmark, beautiful city. And we're trying, trying to figure out, uh, you know, if you were able to save a kilowatt hour by better lighting or better motors or better controls or whatever, you know, what, what is the, what is the avoided cost inter environmental avoided cost of that kilowatt hour? Okay. And, uh, that's a really, really tricky equation, uh, because in Copenhagen, there's a large coal fired power plant that's, uh, at the mouth of the Harbor. It's, you know, going full bore in the wintertime, and it's also providing district heating to the whole city. But it's loaded up with a garbage burning plant at the front end. So it, when the, when the city doesn't need 100% coal, uh, they can use the garbage burning plant for the domestic, for the, for the heating loop, you know, which is, you know, heating not only homes, but all, through, all water throughout the city, a domestic hot water throughout the city. Um, but then an interesting thing happens in the summertime because the Swedes which had a major nuclear program where had excess nuclear power and they were sold at sort of at cheap prices to the Danes back in the, this is back in the day. I don't think the Danes would take it now, but back in the day, the Danes were taking the excess nuclear power in the summer. So they shut down their coal burning power plant. So it all makes it really tricky to figure out what is a kilowatt hour <laughs> worth for you. So, you know, you're doing all this climate action planning and you're figuring out, you know, if you go through commercial buildings and you do lighting retrofits and HVAC retrofits and, you know, and then you're dealing with the building shell and you're, what, now what are the, what are the values when you do those things? Mm -hmm. And that was our job was to come up with, uh, you know, the very first 
greenhouse gas inventories. I'm proud of the inventories we did for Copenhagen and Stockholm and Helsinki and Hanover and Saarbrücken and Ankara, Turkey. But then to take that knowledge that now you know where your emissions are coming from. It's electricity, it's transportation, it's industry. You've got that knowledge now. How are you going to ratchet down? And that was what ICLEI was doing, was helping these cities through the urban CO2 reduction project get their very first insights about, you know, where their emissions come from and how to address their emissions. Wow. And how many cities did ICLEI enlist? Well, in that project, I think there was six or seven or eight European cities. And then there was the same number of um, American cities. So, you know, we had... Um, Denver was part of it. You know, Portland, Oregon was a big part of it. Chicago, Milwaukee, there was a, there was a few others. And and what Phil Jessup did, and I mentioned him as just being you know, one of the real lights of the, is uh, a very early visionary, but also just such a likable guy. And Phil realized that he, he, he needed to take these city leaders and have them working with one another, right? And we're going to take a group, you know, I remember all the Finns coming over to Portland, Oregon, and we'd go out into the into the Gore, Columbia River Gorge, and we go hiking, and then we have sessions, and we talk, you know, and, and as we talked about in our last session together, you know, the Europeans are really good on, you know, you know, district heating loops and, uh, well, transportation, you know, having lots of mass transit, and really good at their building shells, and, the, you know, we were, we were pretty good in America with our, with our electricity works and all of our, what we call demand-side management then, then. So bringing those different people together, it was really a great, a great exercise in, in communications and uh, getting things done together. It sounds like an amazing victory for collaboration. <laughs> um, I really think so. Yeah. And so did each one of these inventories then lead to a climate action plan? And what was that next step in the process? And how did yeah. cities mobilize? And then how did they remain connected or did they? You know, I don't, I don't think they did remain connected, but they were the early pioneers and, you know, their staff people sort of went out and multiplied, I think, and, and sort of spread, spread the word, you know, now when we do inventories, you know, we have to get a city council to approve it and the, and the climate action plan city council approves it. I, I don't know whether these were formally approved by their cities or whether they were shelved or, or whatnot, but, but there was interesting things that came of it. And let me give you just two examples. One is, one was um, Ankara, Turkey, which at the time, you know, had all of this, you know, all these people in their homes that were burning uh, dirty coal in their homes to heat, to heat their homes. And uh, it was, there was obviously, you know, major health implications uh, and it was just very inefficient. And of course, from an environmental standpoint, carbon dioxide standpoint, disastrous. And it turns out that Ankara is, you know, has a, a reasonably, shallow, large aquifer of water beneath it. And somebody had the idea <laughs> through this whole process, when you know, with climate action planning, you, you kind of lay out the data, but then you welcome the world to kind of come up with the great ideas. And somebody said, you know, we should tap, we should have uh, water sourced heat pumps and be tapping the thermal energy in that, you know, that huge aquifer beneath the city. And that, that, that way we can phase out all of the, um, all the dirty coal. And, and, you know, that was the kind of transition that, that was happening. Another, another great story was being in Helsinki in the dead of winter, cold, cold, cold. And as the story was told, there was a, a young aspiring engineer who visited Helsinki um, back in the day 
and he noticed that the that the harbor had no ice on it, and um, and there was even ducks, you know, swimming around in the dead of winter you know, because there was there was no ice. Um, and when he looked into it a little bit, he realized that there was no ice because the all the ther- the, the electricity power plant there uh, was was just um, putting all of its heat water heated water it's it's uh, out of its circulate circulation system into the harbor and just wasting all of that thermal energy. And that really became that city's um, quest to build district heating Mm -hmm. and to say, okay, a power plant, uh, a traditional power plant in our country, you know, is, it has a, what they call heat rates, an efficiency rate of about 35%. That was the traditional thermal power plant heat rate. That means you got 65% of the, of the, of the energy the latent energy that is just being wasted, mostly as, you know, going off with steam or hot water if it's going out into a waterway. So that power plant in, in Iceland, Finland was heating that, doing a wonderful job of heating that harbor. Uh, and that, and then some this young engineer, you know, got into it and started realizing, you know, if you just capture that hot water and then you circulate that hot water throughout the city, you know, that provides all of your heating. That provides, provides most of your domestic hot water heating as well. And so, as you know, in many parts of, of Europe now, almost all big European cities, all the power plants are what we would call a cogen plant, right? They're co-generating electricity and heating. Uh, and more sophisticated plants can even create cooling in the summertime. So those are great. Those are just great examples. We also went to Japan uh, as part of ICLEA. I don't know, it must have been a half dozen trips um, to, to Europe and and. Um, and then throughout North America, and then we went to Japan to Omiya City, which was very interesting. We went to a recycling plant there, and just started to get started to see some of the Japanese, you know, notions of repurposing materials and recycling materials. So there was a lot of, you know, a lot of that, uh, a lot of bonding by coming together and and sharing meals and, to, and toasting one another. But this was really pioneering work in the climate space. Uh, it was it's really proud to be part of it. And how ubiquitous and <laughs> is climate action and a, a universal way to connect and grow relationships and strengthen bonds. So I love that story about Angora um, and all these journeys. What an adventure you've had. I guess last question on the ICLE front, kind of fast forward to today. Um, you said at the time there wasn't a protocol in place. If a city, say like, like Denmark, or sorry, like Copenhagen or Kyoto wanted to pursue climate action planning, starting with getting their baseline with the greenhouse gas inventory, what would they do? Well, ICLE still has member cities all over the world, and ICLE provides the software at a very reasonable cost uh, and also provides technical support um, and also provides, uh, you know, reviews of, um, of, of, of um, inventories that are done. So if people have questions about it, so I think, yeah, I think that's the good news uh, or very, some very good news is that nowadays, uh, you know, there, there are these protocols, you know, going all the way back to the Danish coal plant, you know, you know, these, what I, I've mentioned this a couple of times, this notion of a smart default, you know, if you just don't know what the CO2 emissions are from the power plant in your community, um, but you do know that it's coal versus natural gas or whatnot. Whatever you do know helps to refine and 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 to 
make the protocol more accurate. But there are these defaults that are built in that are just super, super helpful. I was looking at some of them for um, personal footprints, you know, carbon footprint calculators. And and they are so generalized that it, you know, I kind of find them a little bit alarming. Uh, so, but we we really had to to create documents, um, detailed spreadsheets where we laid out all, all of our assumptions, and we do this to this day, where we have we we not only put together a, a, a greenhouse gas inventory, which is very detailed and has lots of good graphics, but we also always put together our methodology briefings, which are how did we get to this <laughs> this assumption or how did we get to this this data point where did it where did it come from because we think that's really important the idea is that somebody in you know 3 years from now or 5 years from now that's updating the inventory sees exactly what all of the assumptions were and can therefore you know normalize the data to see really what kind of progress is is taking place right unfortunately many of those cities have already taken this important step but what a great resource ICLEI continues to be um, for local governments, national governments, tribal nations around the world. So very cool that you had a role to play in those very early days. Yeah, it, it, was, it was great, a great honor, as I said. And, and I'm, I'm thinking about the University of New Hampshire now. You know, we just finished a greenhouse gas inventory for a big community college down in San Diego. And there's just as ICLEI had the sort of the Sort of the one of the best, or the most, most common uh, protocol software for for municipalities. Um, you know, University of New Hampshire with the SIMAP uh, simulated simulation program really, I think, has the best university uh, is the best university resource, and or at least one of the best. We've used them recently when they're great. I mean, they the technical support uh, working through some of the issues that we had with. You know, on one of these campuses, we had power coming in from the utility on some meters, from the community choice aggregator on another meter. We had fuel cells on campus. We have solar systems on campus. Ah, you know, what what are we avoiding when we uh, when we save a kilowatt hour? In uh, um, some of these instances, it gets really tricky. But the idea is is to measure as accurately as possible so that you can you can really take steps, carve away at that footprint. Uh, and then take steps and be able to measure those steps as you move forward. The really tricky thing, you know, most cities don't have a problem measuring. Um, that's just an exercise. It takes time to gather all the data. But the really tricky thing, I think, is is presenting a climate action plan to a city and saying, okay, now if you're going to reduce your emissions to 7% below 1990 levels, uh, you know, or whatever whatever it happens to be, whatever your goal is, you know, that's going to cost money. So we were actually assigning prices to, you know, what would it cost for a city, say, to require uh, its, its taxi drivers to drive hybrids or now to drive electric vehicles? Or what would it cost for a bus line to swap out all their buses with EVs? Or, you know, all these measures, what would it cost to retrofit all of the municipal buildings with LEDs and controls? All those measures have costs. So a climate action plan starts with that measurement and then brings forth all these different me measures and then presents you know, the costs and the benefits. And at EcoMotion, we always try to have phases in the implementation so that you know, sort of start relatively small, gain some momentum, uh, and then get into the bigger things. And then as we get further out in years, you know, the technologies are advancing as well. I mean, when I was doing those greenhouse gas inventories in Europe, we didn't have LEDs. We were promoting compact fluorescence, which are now, you know, considered a, you know, completely a, a dinosaur technology. Not so wonderful with their mercury. Um, 
Well, thank you. And is it the Clean Air Cool Planet tool you're referring to from UNH? Or it's it's changed its one? name, but yes, it is that. It, yes, right. Yeah. Right. So that's yeah. another you know great resource for universities um, and businesses to to look into as well. I know on a personal front, I'll just give a little plug for the Carbonauts program, um, which is a kind of a leadership training and helping people gauge their personal emissions and then make an action plan. So um, in the interest of time, I want to move on to the results center. Um, and if yeah. you want to just discuss the genesis and the folks involved and tell us the importance of this kind of era and what maybe the legacy of it was. Sure. Yeah, I was I was at the Rocky Mountain Institute at the time. Um, I, I was the director of the energy program there. And we had launched a service called Competitech, which was sh short for Competitive Technologies. And we were really the, I think, one of the world class or world leaders in terms of documenting the best technologies for energy efficiency. Lighting, drive power, appliances, space cooling, space heating. You know, we were really all over it. And we had members all over the world, large utilities and institutes all over the world that were buying our original lighting, what we called the monologue, Amory called it the monologue, it was this big 500-page document that we had 10 people research lighting technologies for, you know, half a year or a year. People, this was selling off the, off the shelves at $5,000 a copy. But RMI and, and Amory Levins, uh, absolutely brilliant mentor, of course, uh, very, very technological and very much focused on, you know, a, a better light bulb, you know, instead of this number of watts, going to use this number of watts or you know, controller on a motor is going to have this effect. Um, I got really interested in the behavioral. How do you how do you reach out to the public? How do you get people to participate? Right? What kind of programs? What kind of educational initiative? What kind of awareness campaigns? What kind of labeling? What kind of standards? What kind of programs? What kind of incentives? How do you get how do you get this into everybody's home? Right? Whether it's you know new lighting for homes or whether it's new motors for industry or new chillers for commercial buildings. And so I was approached um, by Hal Harvey, who was, who was working with the MacArthur Foundation. And uh, Hal had an idea um, that maybe there should be, maybe Flanagan <laughs> should, instead of focusing on tracking all the technologies that the Institute was doing, maybe he should establish a small office and track the best programs. And so that is what we did. Uh, we, we basically... Um, we created an advisory board. Well, first, we created a business plan for this. Ron Lair, who was the who was the chairman of the Colorado Public Utilities Commission, and I wrote a business plan for this when we were when we were cross country skiing up in the mountains in Colorado. Uh, and then we went out. Uh, we I got funded by the MacArthur Foundation. I think they I think it was one hundred and eighty thousand dollars that they that they threw our way, which it, it was a miracle at the time. I hugged the FedEx driver. And then we went out and we sold subscriptions, just as I had done at, at Competitech with Rocky Mountain Institute. Competitech is now eSource, but we were selling subscriptions. I think within the first few months, I had several hundred thousand dollars worth of subscriptions. And you know, before we even wrote the very the very first profile of, of all these programs, I think we had ESCOM in South Africa, and we had Tokyo Electric, and we had New England Electric, and PG&E and Edison. We had all the big we had all the big players that were all supporting us. So our our job was to write was to write case studies uh, of the most successful programs and the most successful approaches, and we ended up writing 128 
case studies that all followed the exact same format, the exact same template. And we had the exact same, you use the exact same discount rates in every one. And we had the exact same terminology for saved energy and cumulative annual energy and all the, we, we were consistent right across the board. We normalized everything to the same year in terms of, of dollars. So that you could really compare and you could contrast. Um, how much does it cost for PG&E to implement that lighting program versus New England Electric? Um, and then what? Then we got into, you know, looking, you know, broadly uh, outside of the country uh, because we had, you know, all of the profiles were most of them were, you know, U.S. and Canada, uh, and our advisory board, and we had a terrific advisory board, you know, people like Ralph Cavana and Eric Hurst and. Hal was instrumental, and um, there were many, Gil Peach, or just many other great, great and influential people that were guiding us. And they said, let's look outside the country. So we, um, we decided to do a series on Europe and uh, a, a series of case studies on Europe. Uh, and that was, that was great. Um, my, my older brother, Billy, your Uncle Bill, uh, had never been to Europe. I had been quite a few times by then, and, and it was fun to with him to map out a trip and to basically go city to city to document uh, these case studies. So we started off in, in Leicester, England, uh, which is about, a, I guess, about a two-hour train ride north of, of London. Uh, it's a college town, pretty, pretty middle-class um, industrial town, but it was Europe's first environment city. And Prince Charles had... Uh, um, had praised uh, Lester at the Earth Summit in Rio, Rio de Janeiro. Uh, and so Lester had gotten a lot of attention. So off we went to Lester because we had our board had nominated this city for a case study. What have they, what have they done? What, what can we bring back to America that they've done in Lester? And uh, we were put up by Paul English, I remember, and his family, who's the head of the, all their programs there, very kind, uh, taking care of us. And I said, well, how did you start? Um, because how does a city start taking climate action or taking environmental action uh, and and where do you, where do you begin and he said oh we had uh, we had a great insight which was to do a survey of our of our residents because we thought oh for sure we would put in better street lights and we would do you know we put controls down at our power, you know our power plants and all this kind of stuff and they did a survey and it came back and, and everybody said what we really want is to clean up the dog crap that's all around the city and so, uh, and, and the, the environmental department was just, really, that's what you want? Um, but somebody, Paul said, the people had spoken. I mean, it was clear that was what they wanted. And I guess there was no rule about bagging your dog's poop and taking that away or whatever. And it was just a mess. And so they, as they told the story, they spent the first year just addressing that problem and succeeding in addressing that problem. And then they went on to just do, you know, really fantastic things. I was, I was so struck by, or we were so struck by going to one office with a young engineer. And uh, I said, well, what's going on here? And he said, well, uh, up on his screen, he had a big, you know, he had all sorts of information on screen. I said, what is that? And he said, well, my job every morning is to check every municipal building in the city. And I can see, because we have controls in all these buildings, I can see I can see the temperature. I can see how much power is being used. I can I can see all of this, and I said, God, that's fantastic. I mean, that was it was early for that kind of a, that kind of a, a view. Now I think it's quite common. Uh, it's, it's it's considered essential. But he said, what's really important is if there's a problem. You know, that's when I 
that's when I jump into gear, right? That, that's when I, 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 I address something. So, you know, that kind of monitoring system. Um, we went, we went from England, uh, we went to, to Germany, um, both, um, Hanover, Hanover, uh, and, and Saarbrücken in Hanover. Our friend Bernd Hagenberg was the head of, uh, Stottwerk, uh, Hanover's energy efficiency programs. And, and they put us up and we were able to really see what kinds of things the utility was doing with um, maximizing the efficiency of, of homes. Uh, we went up to Oslo, Norway on that trip, uh, and we spent time in, in Copenhagen. Uh, one of my favorite stories in Copenhagen was, uh, I've already talked about this large coal, coal plant in the harbor there, but we, were, we had had lunch. Uh, we were hosted by the city, and we were at the plant. We had a really formal lunch in the power plant, sort of in the, in the boardroom there, lots of alcohol. And we went up on the roof of the power plant. It's a beautiful, beautiful view of the city and the harbor. And, it's gorgeous, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, I turned. I turned to the. Uh, I turned to the chief engineer. I said, "Why is the power plant not operating?" And he looked at me. and said, oh, "We're we're operating at a hundred percent right now." And I realized it was just that that whole that that European efficiency that they were using. Wow. All of the electricity coming out of that plant. They're using all the thermal energy coming out of that plant. And of course, the the building wasn't rattling, and there wasn't huge smokestacks. You know that were. It was really. We saw that also in in. Um, in Germany, where the coal-fired power plant, you know, was was making electricity, it was pr providing high-temperature steam to a Volkswagen facility and low-temperature steam to a tire manufacturing, and you know, the ash from the coal was going off to build the English Channel. I mean, it, the thing, the the these power plants, the Europeans were just masterful at using every bit, like, sort of like a rendering plant, using every bit that you could possibly get out of it, and. Uh, Again, all the way back to the United States, our power plants were like 35% efficient. You know, we were just basically, you know, blowing off the other 65%. So again, more of that, more of the importance of those exchanges to see how that was done. I have a whole case study about that one power plant. <laughs> it's, just a, it's just a fascinating case study. Yeah, I think both your stories about Italy and build, developing these 128 case studies with the results center, it just really underscores the value of meeting people where they are, creating greater visibility around the numbers and opening channels of communication and these cross-cultural collaborations that you've helped to facilitate and shed light on. So it's really inspiring. Um, and with all of that, I know even as fast as the energy transition is moving, <clears throat> utilities are notorious for moving so slow. Um, but what is it that you're seeing today that maybe is giving you hope or that's a sign of the utility world evolving? <laughs> like what have these two chapters of your life kind of taught you about and taught you about today and what's possible and um, yeah, it's yeah. A, that's you know, it's a great it's a great question, and I think, you know, it really has been all of this this linking of ideas, uh, taking the Europeans' expertise and in some areas and and bring that. I mean, you think about the Europeans with all their trams, the beautiful trams that run around all these cities, and you know what? Now we've just got beautiful trams being built in all of our cities, and you know, we work for LA Metro, and they're just building more and more light rail. It's, 
it's it's really fantastic. I think I think some of our financing programs, some of the things that we figured out with utility programs and financing, have also have have gone in the other direction. Um, but I, the the whole utility space uh, it has really has really been intriguing because uh, you know in the old days you always had that central power plant and it was big and inefficient and you know it was just it was polluting the world and people were buying its output and and they were happy but that model is you know that's changing now you know we've had to we've had to take on this this much stronger sense of stewardship of the planet and the old power plant model that just the singular direction doesn't work anymore. And now people are much more involved. You know, you asked me what I'm most excited about or most encouraged by. I mean, I think about now the whole notion of virtual power plants. It isn't one big power plant anymore. It's all these individual systems that are networked together to provide sort of local resilience and, and to provide societal value. Uh, but then there's other things that really excite me. I mentioned the, you know, how we were promoting compact fluorescent light bulbs in the Philippines and here and there, all over Europe. But look how fast that! Look how fast the technology has advanced. Uh, when I when I came to Los Angeles to be the director of energy efficiency, you know, none of our traffic signals were LEDs, and the only ones that penciled cost effectively were the the red lights because they're on the majority of the time. And uh, <laughs> now every light is an LED. I mean, you know, so things so so. So we've seen program shift. We've seen responsibility to the earth shift, awareness shift. A lot of people are, are involved, and then we have all these, you know, technologies. Look at the lithium ion. Look at what look at what lithium ion has done for us as a society. So, so there's been lots of lots of cool stuff. So there's no doubt we're evolving, <laughs> even in those days that it doesn't feel like so much. We've really, I think, broken out of a lot of silos. We're beginning to design with more integrative principles. Um, and this whole notion of, yeah, the distributed power plant, distributed leadership, um, it's all very encouraging. So thank you, Dad. Are there any any last thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with today? Well, I just, it's fun to, it, it's fun to recollect and to think back on these. And I just encourage, as I did, I think in the last episode just encourage all of us you know we get so we get so entrenched in our jobs right we our, our heads are down which is good we're we're focused we're, we're doing our job but it it really is there is such value in this practice of creativity of kind of mm -hmm. pushing yourself outside of that and looking what how, how would I, you know i ride my bike almost every day and i turn a corner and i think of my friend jürgen lund madsen who is in Denmark in Copenhagen? What would what would Jurgen think about this? You know, how would Alexander Blaza in the Philippines handle this? You know, how how would you know who, how did these different perspectives just have enriched my life? And I just encourage everybody to to go grab them. I love that. Yeah, so much growth happens when we just step out of our comfort zone. So whatever that circle is, to just dare yourself to step out because there's so much good in the world and we have so much to learn from each other. So thank you for this wonderful conversation. Um, I do look forward to our next episode where we'll be delving into the early 2000s and all of the adventures that have enriched your life, Dad. So thank you so much. It's been great chatting with you today. Thank you, Sierra. And thanks to all our listeners. Take care, folks. That's it. Thanks for listening to Flanagan's Ecologic. We'll see you next time.